Listener Production. Hello, it is Thursday, May 5, and welcome to the 100th episode of The Briefing for 2022. I'm Katrina Blowers, and today's episode, we've got the second part of Jan Fran's interview with Tom Tilley to launch his memoir, Speaking in Tongues. And so we go into this room and we sit down with these two middle-aged men. We have reason to believe you have attended Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Look out. We're like... Yes, we have. Like, we can't condone that. What happens? We get suspended. We're going to have to put you out of fellowship. Goodness me. Well, that is Jan Fran interviewing Tom, part two of that interview about his new book coming up shortly. But first, Annika Smethurst is here with the headlines. Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison will both make their pitches on business and the economy today at the Australia Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Anthony Albanese says he wants a new phase of economic reform to lift Australia's growth and create the conditions for rising wages, which we've all been waiting for, Katrina. Absolutely. While the PM, Scott Morrison, is set to announce policies to help 400,000 small business owners set up shop over the next five years. This comes after the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers held their debate at the National Press Club yesterday. The cost of living, of course, the dominant thing. The defining issue of this election is the full-blown cost of living crisis which has emerged on the Morrison government's watch. Labor's Jim Chalmers there, while Josh Frydenberg warned Labor couldn't be trusted not to raise taxes. We believe in the discipline of ensuring that we don't lift taxes beyond a certain amount. The Labor Party will not have that discipline. In the end, Annika, neither candidate promised anything new in terms of policy. Uh, What did you take away from it? I think that shows uh, Labor being a little bit scared of what happened last time. We saw them promising some huge changes to tax, mainly around franking credits, and it was said to cost them the election back in 2019. So I think it's playing it safe by Labor. And of course, there's also not a lot of money to splash around. We're in pretty dire times after the pandemic. So uh, not a lot of tax cuts can be promised. The EU's plans to end imports of Russian oil and gas might be vetoed by Hungary. So under the European Commission proposal, crude oil would be phased out in six months and refined products by the end of the year with a longer time frame for Slovakia and Hungary. We will make sure that we phase out Russian oil in an orderly fashion. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen there. But Hungary says its energy supply would be destroyed if the proposal was carried out. Hungary received more than half of its crude oil and oil product imports from Russia last year. No proposal was announced to end imports of Russian gas, which would be a lot tougher to replace. Meantime, Russian troops have entered the steelworks in Mariupol, the last Ukrainian holdout in the city. It's believed 200 people, along with at least 30 children, are still trapped inside. Singer Guy Sebastian is back on the stand today in the trial between himself and his former manager Titus Day. Uh, Day is accused of embezzling a million dollars, pocketing money from royalties, gig fees and ambassadorships that the singer argues should have gone to him. 
Some of the gigs in question include performances as a support act for Taylor Swift and singing at private weddings in both Indonesia and Italy. The talent agent is arguing there is a clear answer for every charge. Uh, so the pair had a, a good working relationship for 10 years and then it soured in 2017 and all that has led to civil action and now a criminal trial. Qantas is heading to the High Court over the baggage handling saga. It's after the airline lost its appeal, the court unanimously upholding the decision that Qantas has breached the Fair Work Act. Qantas had axed 2,000 employees in November 2020 during the pandemic in favour of cheaper outsourced staff. Qantas claiming that the outsourcing was a necessary financial measure that could save it $100 million annually. The Transport Workers Union had argued the outsourcing decision was motivated by an anti-union sentiment. Many of the baggage handlers sacked were union members and their bargaining agreements were set to expire that following month. And how about this? The shirt worn by Diego Maradona when he scored the controversial Hand of God goal against England in the 1986 World Cup has sold for a record price at auction overnight. Now, this jumper fetched £7.1 million. That's equivalent to $12.3 million Australian dollars. Yeah, it's the highest price ever paid at auction for a piece of sporting memorabilia. Maradona headed the ball into goal, but you can clearly see him push the ball as well to score his first two goals in the quarterfinal win in Mexico City. He later said the goal was scored a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. Yeah, I doubt that would pass the pub test now, <laughs> Annika. But also, geez, who would have that much money to spend on one jumper that, uh, well, you've got to hope that it would be displayed somewhere where everyone can see it and not in someone's pool room. Mm. All right, we've got part two of Jan Fran's interview with Tom Tilly to launch his memoir, Speaking in Tongues. Hello, it's Jan Fran here. I'm chatting to Tom about his new memoir, Speaking in Tongues. Um, if you haven't listened to the first half of this chat, I would highly encourage you to do so. It was on yesterday's app. This is the second half of our chat together, talking about Tom growing up in a very strict church and how he eventually left that church and what some of the difficulties were. We left the chat yesterday where you had just moved to Sydney. You were in this really strict environment. You were coming of age. You were in your late teens, early 20s, mm. living on your own or with some housemates really questioning what was going on. Doubts had been building this whole time. Was there a penny drop moment for you where you went, you know what, this is it. I'm leaving. I don't believe anymore. More or less, there was kind of a, a brain or life explosion moment right at the end of uni. So I studied commerce. I was going to do journalism, but ended up in commerce because I was worried about not making enough money. And right before I started a full-time job out of uni, I went on, I, I won this scholarship for an advertising award and suddenly had like two grants. Like, all right, well, I'll go overseas for six weeks. Did the first backpacking adventure and it just blew my mind. The people I met, especially traveling around Europe, I went to LA first and I've never felt so scared and alone as mm. on a, a light rail traveling through South Central as a white boy, trying to say, like, make small talk with some of the locals there, you know, in South Central. Um, so that was a bit of a vibe. And then in Europe, I 
somehow met these Spanish squatters from London and jumped in a van with them and drove right through Europe for three days. And these were the loosest, most liberal, wildest people I'd ever met. And you were a virgin who did not drink very highly religious at this point. Yes. And from my church's point of view, these people were like the bad people. They partied, they did drugs, they did all this kind of stuff. But they were so lovely to me and they were the most warm, open, amazing people. And yeah, I was sitting in a someone's apartment in Paris who I'd never met with these Spanish ravers. And I think some, there may have been a joint going around. There was a joint going around <laughs> and they're like, do you want some? I'm like, um, I don't know. And, and one of the guys just goes, and they were all speaking Spanish and French, just say lo que sea, which in Spanish means it will be how it will be. I was like, Locasea, and that was just kind of the attitude I took through everything. So I just freed myself up, and I'd been the, the sort of careful older brother, whereas my younger brother Sam had been wild. And so I was like, maybe I can be wild. And then I was in Barcelona and just ended up having the most amazing time. And, and I met this Christian guy there who was loose, really loose, but also said he was a Christian. And he, he gave me this different perspective on Jesus, talked about the compassionate side and that he would be in the gutters and the the streets of the cities, um, helping the poor and the weak and just painted this much more compassionate version of Christ. Or we'd been given this kind of like you speak in tongues or you don't kind of version of salvation. Mm. I was like, maybe you can live an adventurous, compassionate life kind of outside of this world that I'd grown up in and still be a good moral person. Whereas that avenue hadn't been open and it had been going to heaven via this narrow pathway or the path of destruction. And suddenly my mind opens like, I think there's another way to live. And so you're doing a bit of travelling and your mind's kind of opening up, as you say, but the church still has a massive influence in your life. Remember, this isn't you going to church for one hour every Sunday. Mm. This is your dad's a pastor, your mm. family's in the church, your brothers, your Christmas housemate, camps, kids' camps. Everything. Your social life is, is built around this church. But you kind of come back and you say, you know, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I'm not going back to the church. How was that received by the church and by your family? And what did that do to your life? Well, initially they kicked me out because when I got back from that trip, I went to the Mardi Gras. And so... Oh, cool. That sounds like a no to me. That's a, that's a no-no for the revivalist church. Yeah. So that was against the rules, but Sam never cared. And I'd started caring a lot less. So we went anyway. And then the next Sunday, they're like, uh, could Sam and Tom Tilly please meet us in the room to the side of the stage once the meeting's finished? And so we come into this room, like, oh, what have we done? And I'd done a lot of things that they wouldn't have approved of on my recent trip to Europe. But I was like, Sam wasn't on that trip, so why is he in the room? And so we go into this room and we sit down with these two middle-aged men. We have reason to believe you have attended Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Look out. We're like, yes, we have. They're like, we can't condone that. What happens? We get suspended. We're going to have to put you out of fellowship. That was the heavy phrase you, you never wanted to hear, out of fellowship. Uh-huh. That meant outside the community, no contact. How did they know you were at the Mardi Gras? I mean, was someone there? Great question. Because I'm starting to think someone from the church was there, <laughs> and they, unless your brother dobbed you both in. Which... Well, there was another friend who was there too, but I reckon my suspicion is that Sam was just blabbing on to people telling them. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, someone else from the church... Was there. Oh, we were spotted on TV. I don't know. So I, I said, when we drove home, Sam was crying like, oh, we're going to be in so much trouble with mum and dad. I was like, bro, 
I'm out. I pretty much decided I wanted to leave anyway when I was in Europe. and This was a freebie. This was an easy way out. I didn't have to stand there and say, I don't believe in this, blah, blah, mm. blah. I said, nah, I don't, I'm not into all this negativity, getting booted out of the church. This is not how I want to live. See you later. But then someone dragged me back in. They sat me down and said, do you know how much pain this is going to cause your whole family, your friends? And you've never given it 100%. I said, what are you talking about, mate? I've given my whole life to this. He goes, but have you given it 100%? He sort of mm. trapped me in this logic. I was like, well, I mean, I'm not giving my everything to it. I still go to school or sometimes I do things just for myself that are for fun or, you know, my studies or my friends or, yeah, and I've broken a few rules. So maybe I haven't. Maybe you're right. And what if I was born into the one true church mm. but turned my back on it without actually giving it a proper try? What a, what a tragedy that would be. So now you've got the seed of doubt, but going the other way, yeah. doubting whether or not you're, you're a doubting Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> I nearly called the book that, but it was a bit of a deep Christian reference that obviously you know. I know. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Thomas, apostle of Jesus, very much doubted him, was outcast as a doubter. Anyway, that's where that reference there comes from. So now you're having doubts about whether or not you've made this right decision to leave the church. But at the same time, like you're living with your brother, you're living with only people from the church. Yeah, I was in a in a revivalist share house that I, I found the lease. Yeah. But once I'd been out for a while, they started saying, if you don't come back to the church, you have to leave the house. I'm like, well, I'm not leaving. I got the lease. Like, well, in that case, we'll make the other three guys move out. Mm. I was like, well, I don't want to do that to them. They didn't buy into any of this nonsense that I'm throwing into the mix. Anyway, I went back, had another go at it. And then more problems arose and then it was the second time around where the heartache kicked in for some reason and I, I don't truly understand why. The first time out of the Mardi Gras, I was like, sweet, I'm out. And then the second time, it was just so much heavier and I got this stress and this like kind of physical heartache and felt really dislodged from my parents this time. And did they say anything to you that made you feel that way? Where did that come from the second time around? Yeah, I'd really disappointed them and I got a, a much deeper sense of it and there are all, all these reasons why which are in the book. I was one of those conscientious eldest child. I wanted to please my parents. I wasn't rebellious by nature, mm. but I was seeing some nonsense in this church that didn't fit. It didn't actually fit with the way my parents brought me up, ironically. They said, oh, you've got to do this by the church, but my parents had these deeper values that I think were much bigger and more open-minded than that. They encouraged me. They lent me the money to, to go on that first overseas trip. My parents were open-minded, adventurous people, which really didn't fit with the, the sort of tight, highly regulated church they brought us up in. There's so much more that you talk about in this book, including what happens when that fractured relationship between you and your parents starts to rebuild. And I think that that was a really lovely moment. And also your first relationship with a girl outside of the church that mm. spans years. I don't want to go into it too much because I kind of want the reader to just, because when I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, will you just have sex already? <laughs> like this thing has been going on transcontinental for years, Tom. And I was I'm so, yeah, I was really hesitant. It took me two years from the f moment I left the church for the first time to finally have sex. And there were heaps of moments of, you know, possibility and is it happening and is it not happening? And let's just say, to use a terrible pun, I was rooting for you <laughs> the whole time. I really was. 
like all people who write books for the first time, like you're not you're not an author, you're a journalist. Mm. You started out as a, as an investment banker, which is just insane to me. But because mm. that's just not how I see you at all. Why did you decide to actually write this book? When I was a kid in the church, as we talked about earlier, I was embarrassed by it. When I was in my twenties, around the time I met you, I was even once I was out, I was embarrassed by it and didn't really want to sort of wear it front and center as part of my identity. I wanted to rebuild a new life, which was really hard. Mm. And I was worried about how I fit in. I was always worried about how I fitted in. I was someone who wanted to get along with people and be liked. Yeah, it was never something I, I wore that proudly, particularly in my public life. So I ended up sort of becoming well-known to the Triple J audience and to some audience outside of that. Anyone who, who knew me personally knew that I grew up in a pretty unusual church, but in public, I never really talked about it. I kind of didn't want to colour my journalism. You know, when I covered these kind of issues, I didn't want people to, I really wanted to have this really hardcore sense of objectivity to my work because mm. I wanted everyone to feel included in my journalism and not be sort of cut off by it. But then on another level, I was embarrassed by it. But then I ended up just having the most amazing life, like was so happy with my life. The job at Hack was a dream job for me to be on national radio, speaking about things that really mattered, getting to be part of the most important conversations that were happening in our society. And then somehow mid-30s end up in a dream band. and I'm, mm. I end up in client liaison, touring the country, playing the biggest festivals, riding in a 1983 stretch Mercedes limousine. Yeah, I think I saw you play Splendour. Yeah, we played Splendour main stage on a Sunday night. Yeah. DJing after parties, like just the most wonderfully fun, beautiful life. And also I'd build a community, like the, the partying that you sort of have keep harping on about. <laughs> I've only mentioned it twice. I yeah. could have mentioned it more, just saying. That was about me finding my people. That's why I loved partying so much. The amazing people we were meeting, yourself included, your husband who I mentioned before, like all these characters roaming around Sydney and Melbourne and I loved it and I loved connecting and I was I was so happy with the people that I'd met and this community I'd built that I was like, this thing that I'm embarrassed by, it's part of my story and it's part of what got me to this place and I I'm pretty sure it's impacted the way I do my journalism, the way I connect with people, the tough things that I've been through help me understand when we've done issues around mental health or people finding their way or feeling lonely or lost. Mm. I think it's made me a stronger person and I want to tell this story. I think the book's the right way to tell a story like this, better than radio, probably better than television because it's about the emotional and psychological journey of unpacking this kind of mm. brainwashing and finding yourself and, yeah, I didn't do it for altruistic reasons, but I do hope it encourages anyone who's born into a world that they didn't choose, that doesn't fit for them, to have the guts for the fight to create the life that you want. There's a sort of full circle moment in the book, actually the last page, where you talk about having your own son. Mm. I mean, I'm going to take a wild guess here. You're not going to raise him in the church? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Like a few people ask me, so what what are the values you're going to yeah. raise him with? And alongside my key collaborator, his mother, Amanda, we'll work that out together. It won't involve hardline religion, but there will be some values. I mean, I also don't want to overcompensate for my own life. I think that's a classic trap parents fall into. It was like, oh, well, I had to deal with this and I don't want that for you. And probably for me, the, the easiest overcorrection would be to be really liberal, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm going to have to find the right balancing point mm. for some of these things. Mm. So, yeah. I'm sensing a sequel here. <laughs> <laughs> Parenting with Tom Tilly. 
<laughs> don't know. I mean, you keep saying my first memoir. I don't think there'll be a second, but who knows? Well, look, before we get to the second, the first is here. Speaking in tongues, if you haven't got it, you can grab it from any major bookstore. You can download it onto your Kindle. You can take the plunge and download an audio book and actually hear Tom reading the book for you. Yeah, it was a really great read. I really enjoyed it and I feel like it's given me a completely different perspective on on who you are as a person and why you are the way that you are. Thanks so much for, for getting right into it and, yeah, inside this crazy story. Love it. Coming up on tomorrow's briefing, we take a deep dive into Roe versus Wade and the implications this could have for women in America and their right to choose. Listener.